Good evening. I'd like to take a look at um, the book of Luke tonight. The book of Luke presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the dependent man or the son of man. Luke was a doctor, so Luke presents a number of interesting facts that none of the other Gospels relate to us. Luke presents things in a moral order, or he presents them as themes and not as a chronological order. Often Luke is studied as one of the synoptic gospels, and I would suggest to you that there is some error in studying Luke as a synoptic gospel, because Luke has a particular thing he wants to communicate, and he tells you exactly what he wants you to know about what he's trying to tell you. And when you add in what Matthew tells us or what Mark tells you, sometimes you lose the message that Luke is teaching. And so I think if you would, um, next time you look at Luke, look at Luke individually and try to distinguish what is important to look at the other two for and what you should just look at Luke for. And tonight, I'd like to look at three different feasts that we find in Luke. Each of them are talked about by the Lord Jesus. I want to look at each of them, see the contrast, see what is the same, and see what they have for us to learn. A theme of Luke, and he presents it through the whole book, is that what we do in this life affects the next life. What we do in this life affects the next life. He also addresses priorities on a regular basis, and he presents the Lord's moral teaching again and again and again to us in the claims that the Lord has on us. So look at Luke 13, and we'll look at the first of the feast. We're going to start with verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up, and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and they which are first shall be last. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. I don't know if verse 23 is an innocent question or it was an attack on the Lord, but the question was, are there few that be saved? 
It's a question sometimes we ask. We look at someone's ministry and we go, how effective is your ministry? How many were saved? And so this person wants to know, if you're really the Messiah and you're effective and you're a good preacher, are there very few that are going to be saved? And he answers with an interesting answer. He says, strive to enter into the straight gate. And the first thing you'll notice is that that there's a specific question answered that's generalized, but the answer is to the one who asks the question. You know, one thing about salvation is it's individual. It's individual. And so the individual is addressed. Strive to enter at the straight gate. There, There were... The lawyers and the Pharisees did not believe on Jesus Christ. So who was going to get saved? And if salvation was only to those who repent, which Luke tells us a number of times, who could repent? Many people, especially the Pharisees, thought they were religious enough already. And those, the rulers of the synagogues, were against them. We see all this in the last two chapters leading up to this point. And so it's a natural question, how many are going to get saved? But he doesn't talk about how many are going to get saved. He talks about the individual's need to get saved. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. In fact, if you study history, how many people have gotten saved? Think about Noah's day. There were eight souls saved when the world was destroyed. In Lot's day, there were three saved out of Sodom. In Elisha's day, there were two Gentiles reached. And in the days of Isaiah, the fewness of the saved are likened to the grapes left after the harvest or after the vintage. Numbers have never been that important to God. But individuals are. And so he says, strive to enter in. And actually, the word could be agonized from the Greek We have translated here, strive, agonize. You know, we don't think of a process of coming to Christ as something to agonize over. But it's something, it's it's a picture of someone striving for a goal to achieve and putting everything else behind them. It's almost to the point, it has to be important to you. Salvation has to be important to you for you to achieve it. If it's just something you're adding to your life or just something that's extra, it's not enough. There's some people who are athletes in this, in this room. And if you're going to be a world-class athlete, you have to put everything else away. And you have to have one goal and seek it. If you would, you even have to agonize to reach that goal. And that's what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. In fact, Isaiah foretold that. When he foretold John coming as a messenger, and the message was that John was going to come, and what was one of the things John was going to do? He was going to remove every obstacle. In Isaiah 43 and 5, it says this, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare you the way the Lord makes straight, In the desert, a highway for our God, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Make straight. Be prepared. Make it right. 
Get rid of the mountains. Salvation's individual, but it takes an individual who's really willing to look for it. It does not mean to strive, does not mean to work for your salvation. It means not to be distracted, to seek it as a goal, to set your mind and heart to it. Straight also has an idea of being narrow. There's only one way and one door, and I think we're going to see that in what happens next. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. There were some who were being hindered. It was their pride. They wouldn't admit that they were being self-righteous. They wouldn't come to repentance. Other cases, it was their family. But they were being hindered, and they weren't making it straight. And there's going to come a day when that door is shut, and there's going to be those outside the door. I think we live in a day and age where, at least I do, where I talk to people. And I have a lot of people tell me they're spiritual. That they have a relationship with God. That they have a God who's watching out for them. They have a God who they pray to. They have a God who they think they have a relationship with. But the truth of the matter is they're going to be where these people are. They're going to be outside the door. Because the Bible says that there's only one way. And Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Pharisees here in this parable who were listening to this thought they had a relationship with God. They thought they were bound for the kingdom. They thought they knew God. But he's the ones, the very ones they're addressing. Because thinking you know God and thinking you have a relationship with God is a lot different than knowing Jesus Christ and knowing God through his son. And so there's a real issue here before them. They might have even had some kind of spiritual experience. Just notice what they say next. Then shall ye begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. We know you. We were right up alongside of you. Maybe even we went to church every Sunday. Maybe we even taught Sunday school. We know you. And notice the answer. But he shall say, I tell you, I know ye not. Whence you are. Depart from me. John 10, 27 and 28 says this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. People think they know God and they don't know his son. People think they have a relationship with God and they don't know Jesus Christ. People think they're doing good and they're going to be good enough. That their good's going to outweigh their bad somehow and that's going to be enough. And they're going to be outside the closed door. And he's going to say, 
I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. These are people who said, <laughs> we were right there. Don't you remember? We were good. Don't you remember? He's going to say no. He does not remember. He does not remember at all. 1 John 2.29 says this, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is the born of him. If you're not born of him, there's two categories. Born of him and righteous, or you don't know him and you're workers of iniquity. The Bible's pretty black and white in those terms. They're not, well, I sort of have an experience, a spiritual experience with the holy. I pray to him and he, he does good things for me. There's a lot of people very confused about who God is and what his standard is. The Lord Jesus wasn't confused. The Pharisees were. And he straightens them out by simply telling them these stories and, and pointing out their weaknesses. And notice it says, depart from me. You know, most of us enjoy the blessings of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him a man into the glory of God by us. The Lord Jesus Christ is every blessing. There's nothing without him. And to be compelled to depart from him is every misery. You know, eternity will be separated from God for those who don't know him who don't know the Father through the Son, and separated from God. So notice what he says. There'll be weeping and gnashing in teeth, and ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself thrust out. And you yourself thrust out. The Lord moves on to what's going to happen after they're thrust out. Those who thought they had a table in the kingdom, and these Pharisees particularly he's writing to, all thought they were headed for the kingdom, are going to be thrust out. But worse than that, they're going to be able to see everyone who is in the kingdom. You realize that? And you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. One of the big things about eternity Separated from God is the ability of being able to remember and the ability to be regretful about the choices you made. Have you ever thought about the people in hell being able to see the people in heaven? I never thought about that much. Most of us know the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, let me read you from the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, 22 and 23, it says this, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in the bosom. 
boy, the, the scriptures tell me twice that they're going to be able to see into heaven and see who's there. I never thought about that before. But that's what my Bible tells me. And so you're going to have an opportunity to see anybody who preached Christ to you, anybody who brought the Savior before you, anybody who told you a plain way of salvation, that grandmother who prayed for you her whole life, you're going to be able to see them sitting in paradise. That's really something. And then particularly for the Pharisees in verse 29, and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. There'll be a lot of people there. He's telling them, my message is with power. And there's going to be a lot of people who respond. He's answered to the individual, but his final answer is there are going to be there are some, J. Vernon McGee, one, who believes there will be more people in heaven than in hell. There will be a lot of people there. And then the last verse, and behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. And particularly for the Pharisees, the publicans and the sinners and the outcasts, who they were sure would never make the kingdom of God, while they were on the way to the kingdom of God, that it would just be the opposite. That those they were sure were last and left out will be the ones that they will open their eyes and see were the ones who repented and came to the Lord Jesus and will be first. And they'll be the last. Hell is a reality. And the Lord Jesus preached it. And he preached it. Look, now look at Luke 14, if you would. A rather famous message on... We'll start with verse 15. Luke 14 and verse 15. And when one of them sat at meat with him, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat the bread in the kingdom of God. Probably a common statement among the Pharisees, patting each other on the back and saying, Happy are we going to be when we get there and we get to partake of that great meal in, in heaven. Won't it be great? Then he said unto them, a certain man made a great supper and bade many, and he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuses. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I brought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out in the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled, for I say unto you that none of those men 
which were bidden shall taste of my supper. There's actually a song about this, and if I remember right, the guys used to sing this on a regular basis. I cannot come. I cannot come. All very, very flimsy excuses. All very flimsy excuses. Now, if you were to read this in Matthew, you might think it's the same illustration as given in Matthew, but I don't think it is. And one of the key reasons why it's not is because this servant is singular. I think it's singular because it's speaking of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is sending out invitations and people are saying, not now. Not now. Not now because businesses gets in the way. Not now because family gets in the way. Not now because anything in life that could get in the way gets in the way. And they're sending him away and telling him not now. They have some other reason why not now. Some other reason why not now. Luke has preached about priorities. Right in this life throughout this book. And when we see the tragic example of those who do not have their priorities in line, here it is. Let's look at Luke 12. 16-23. During this passage on priorities, he starts with Mary and Martha. When one of the sisters comes and says, can't you get my sister to serve? All she's doing is sitting there. And the Lord says, she's chosen the more excellent thing. And he goes on to talk about priorities, and we come... Now, the 16th verse, where he's going to discuss that. Verse 13, actually. Let's look at verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, and he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said to him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be? which thou hast provided, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If you read through the book of Luke, he piles this story after story after story, illustration after illustration after illustration, teaching us the same thing, that priorities in this life are important. That the cow and the wife and the farm They're all something you need to think about in this life. If you're a farmer, you have to have somewhere to store your goods. 
But if you lose the main object of salvation in eternity, it's a rather low priority what's happening in this life. Each of these men here that were invited got their priorities wrong. They thought it was more important what they were doing than to consider God. And they weren't rich towards God. They weren't rich towards God. There's nothing wrong with a wife or property or, or buying cattle. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem, it was being used as a substitute. They weren't making straight their way. They were allowing outside influences to get in the way of a very important decision they had to make. A very important decision that they had to make. We'll see in this illustration here, in these thrill illustrations, we have a master, we have a Lord. In this one, we have a master. In, that, in the first one, we had a Lord. First one, we had a master. This one, we have a Lord. And then, and then in the last one, we're going to have a father. And each one illustrates a different aspect of how God comes to us and appeals. And how God shows us. In this case, he sends his servant, singular, out to show us the loveliness of Jesus Christ. So we might find him altogether lovely. And yet, he's rejected. He's rejected. Not now. Not now. Not now. We have some who think they have a relationship. We have some who say not now. And now let's look at the last one. In Luke 15. Luke 15 is a story of the lost things. We have the lost sheep. I hear this many times. I hate to correct people. But once again, Luke has a little nuance. Look at verse 6, if you would. I'll, I'll let you in on this little nuance. Um, let's look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine? Where? In the fold? My Bible says in the wilderness. In the wilderness. And goes after that which is lost until he has found it. The song, the 90 and 9, which is a very fine gospel song, talks about the 90 and 9 in the fold. Many people read that because maybe because of that song and they think they're in the fold, but the 90 and 9 are where? They're in the wilderness. He's seeking one. And it really shows us the importance of the one individual. There's 10 coins in the next illustration, and he seeks, and the lady woman cleans the house looking for one coin. And so we go from 99 and one loss, we go to 10 and one loss, and then we come to two and one loss. When he comes to the story of the prodigal son and he gives us the illustration of the prodigal son. And 
it's a tremendous story where he sinks to the very lowest that a Jew possibly can sink to of eating after the pigs. The pig was the most unclean animal that a Jew could possibly have. As most of you know, to this day, Jews will not eat pork or have anything to do with the pig. And here this Jewish man, a proud Jewish man, who at one time was rich, loses all his friends, loses his inheritance, misspends it. King James says, on wanting living, he's down to nothing. In fact, worse than nothing, he's eating after the pigs. In our day in society, I would say someone who was strung out on drugs and had lost their family and was in the gutter, and they come to their senses as a prodigal son does, and they realize that things are better off in their father's house. Oh, if I was only a servant in my father's house, I'd be so much better than here. And he goes home, and his father from a great distance sees him coming and runs to him and showers him with kisses and orders a fatted calf to be slain, overjoyed at his son's repentance. And in every one of these stories, we're told that there was joy when the sheep was found, there was joy when the coin was found, and there was joy when the lost son was found. And then we come to verse 28. Let's read from verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to his house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out to entreat him. We have those who think they're in and find out that they're not because they don't have a proper relationship with God. We have those who are too busy and put it off. And then we have one who's angry at God and refuses to go in. And he refuses to go in because he's looking at who's already inside. I'm not like them. I don't need a crutch. I'm good enough for God. I don't need to come in repenting because I haven't fallen as far as my brother has. In fact, he's angry at his father for allowing the fatted calf and a banquet to be thrown for his father. For, his, for, the, for the youngest son. He had no right to be honored like that. If anybody should be honored, it should be the faithful son. And he refuses to go in. I know probably, I know you've heard this, so I won't make a joke of it, but I know you've heard this. The church is full of hypocrites. I don't want to go to church. I don't know why I'm about Christianity because all those failures. That's all those hypocrites. Don't tell me about that. There's people who are rejecting the gospel because of who has accepted it. Well, here you have it. You have the older son rejecting it because of who's already at the supper. And I love this part. We don't always concentrate on this. We don't always talk about it a lot.
But after he was angry, it says, therefore came his father out and entreated him. The father didn't write him off. The father didn't tell him the door was shut. The father didn't tell him it was too late. The father comes out in grace and love, the same grace and love he showed to one brother, he shows it to the other brother. It's an amazing thing about our God. He shows grace and love equally to each of us as individuals. He doesn't single us out. He doesn't write us off when we fail. He doesn't write us off even when we get angry. Even when we get angry at him, he doesn't write us off. And he comes out and he entreats the brother And the brother rejects the father's gracious entreaty. You know, some really sad parts of the Bible, and to me, this is one of the really sad ones. The father is so joyful that this lost son has returned, and the oldest son, I don't want to say ruins a moment, but he definitely puts a damper on it. The father, though, doesn't say, well, you know, oh well, away with you. He comes out and pleads with him. And notice the son's response. Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments, yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which was devoured thy living with harlots thou hast killed for many and famed and fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, thou art forever with me, and all that I have is thine. If we, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this day, thy brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. If we return over to Luke 16, one of the things we're going to find in the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man is the Lazarus as a rich man blaspheming God. I once heard someone say that they thought that once everyone got to, to, to hell, they would be believers and they would understand. They, I don't think they knew the scriptures. Because a rich man blasphemes God. He says, you didn't give me enough information. Send someone back from the dead. And what does Abraham say? They have what? The law and the prophets. Let them read them. When we turn over to Revelation, it says those in hell will blaspheme God. They will be angry with God. They will tell, place the blame on God. You know, we, we live in a day and age of fear where many people blame God. They blame God. They're angry with God. They're angry with God about their life. They're angry with God about their situation. I was in Vancouver speaking and a young man came up to me after I was speaking about our expectations and how perfect God is and he said, well, who's going to hold God accountable? There's people who think God has failed them and they want God to be held accountable. Just like this older brother thinks that the father has failed him by honoring the son. 
and they want, and they want their ounce of revenge. There are going to be people in hell who feel, think God failed them. He didn't give them enough information. God says it's here in his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is no excuse for anyone who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior. In looking at these suppers, we've looked at the reason why people think they have valid reasons. Some out of ignorance, they think they have a relationship with God. Some because they're too busy or they don't have their priorities right. And some because they're mad at God because they think they've been shortchanged in this life. But no matter the reason for rejecting the message, the results are already always the same. Anyone who rejects Jesus Christ is bound for eternity without God. And the Bible's very, very clear what will take place. First off, you'll be separated from God from whom all blessings flow. Secondly, it definitely appears like you will be able to see who else is in heaven while you're in hell. From the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's clear that you're going to be able to remember First thing he says, he remembered his brothers and asked for them to send someone back. You're going to be able to remember every time someone preached the gospel. You're going to be able to remember every time the Lord Jesus was presented as Savior. You're going to be remember every time that Jesus Christ was mentioned that he died for your sins and took your place on Calvary. I am so thankful that he took my judgment upon himself so that I might never judgment know. But there are those, I'm, I even fear here in this room, that are going to bear the judgment of eternity on themselves because they've said no to God and no to his son. I would pray that no one else is in that condition here or is making an excuse or doesn't have their priorities right or hasn't agonized about coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, I've sinned and I need a substitute someone who can die for me in my place so that I don't have to bear eternity apart from God. There's only one way to know God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be together. We thank you for the message that's clear. Well, Father, we would thank, ask that our priorities be right. Father, for those of you, who, those of us who have come to know your son, that we would have our priorities right in this life. That we would realize what the most important thing is. That we wouldn't get caught up in secondary and minor things. But we would be able to, Father, to see what your priorities are and serve you. And then, Father, we would pray for anyone who might not know your son. To anyone who is outside the banquet looking to get in, but not sure of how to do it. That they would turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. As he is the only way. He is a door. He's the only truth. Father, we pray for those who are angry about their situation in life. Angry at God for having done to them what they believe he's done to put them in that situation, Father, that they might 
realize that it's sin and that they might repent of their sin and turn to God and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those who think that there's tomorrow or think there's another day. And yet, Father, we're so glad that it says, yet there is room. Yet there is room. So, Father, we would pray for any who are outside that they might realize that yet there is room. There's a place for them in heaven for all eternity. Oh, Father, we thank you again for your son. We thank you that he paid the price that we owed, a price we could not pay, a debt we could not pay. And he took our sins away, Father, through his death there at Calvary. Oh, we're so thankful. May we live that way, Father. May others see the appreciation we have and the way we live. May we, Father, be like Paul when he said that knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Father, may we not be comfortable with those around us who will be outside the door when that door is shut. Father, give us the courage to talk to others about the Lord Jesus Christ and their eternal destiny before it's ever too late. Thank you, Father, again for this day we've had to think of your son, to speak of him, Father, and to meditate on the greatness and the excellency of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.